Hey, do y'all remember these, these games called Spot the Difference? I know it's hard to, to see. I was going to put it on the screen and forgot. This one is of Abraham traveling up Mount Moriah with Isaac. And, you know, on first glance, the way these things work is the pictures look identical. You know, if you just glance at it real quick, it's the same thing. But if you study it, practice your observation skills, the differences start to show up. You can see subtle changes. Maybe Isaac's eye color is brown in one of the pictures, but blue in another. Abraham had a knife around his neck in one, and in another he conveniently forgot the knife, and Isaac was grateful for that. Um, but <laughs> that, you know, that's the way these work, things work. I, I think as an adult you should be very good at the sort of observational skills required to master a spot the difference puzzle. But the other day I was at Chick-fil-A with my kids and we were inside eating and on the back of the Chick-fil-A bag was a spot the difference. And so me and Knox are looking at it and trying to figure out if we can find all the difference. And I thought I had them all until he pointed out to me a few that I had missed. And so maybe as adults we need to become like little children and be more observant. But the reason I was thinking about that this week is because at first glance, the story Jim read for us seems awfully identical to one we looked at together a few weeks ago. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And here in Mark chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 people. And so, you know, as a reader of the gospel and perhaps as a preacher of it, you start to ask yourself, are these things redundant? I mean, after all, both stories contain a hungry crowd, confused disciples, a miracle where Jesus miraculously multiplies loaves and fishes, and at the end of it all, both crowds are satisfied. There's plenty of food left over. But as in most things, the real significance of the stories isn't in their similarities, but in their differences. This morning, I want to point out two key differences in these stories that I think really help us to understand what Mark is trying to communicate to us as readers of his gospel and what Jesus is trying to do as a king bringing an unexpected kingdom. I think as we look at them, we're going to see that as followers of Jesus, you and I are called to show his compassion to everyone we meet. And you're wondering, how do we get there? Well, I'm going to show you. As followers of Jesus, we're called to show his compassion to everyone we meet. Now, Mark picks up the story in Mark 8, 1. He says, in those days, implying that this story happens right after the story that came before it. Jesus had been in the Decapolis and had healed a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And before he was in the Decapolis, he was in Sidon. And before that, he was in Tyre, where he met a Syrophoenician woman, and he healed her daughter. All three of these stories take place in Gentile territory, not predominantly Jews. And in each case, Jesus has come face to face with an unexpected person, somebody you wouldn't normally expect to get in on the blessings of the kingdom. And so when Jesus looked at this crowd, he wasn't looking at a bunch of church people. He was looking at a group of people who were far from God. 
And that's the first difference I want you to see in this story of the 4,000 versus the 5,000. It's the composition of the crowd, their makeup. Who were these people who had gathered around Jesus? In the early part of Jesus' ministry, he had conducted his preaching and healing in Galilee, and mainly around the city of Capernaum and the villages that were outside of it. This was Jewish land. Wherever he went, he met with Jewish people who knew the stories of the Old Testament and were hoping for God's coming kingdom. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happened in that context. He and his disciples got in a boat and traveled to the wilderness of Galilee where they hoped to find some rest from all the ministry they'd been performing. When they got there, they found a crowd of 5,000 Jewish men with very particular political and religious expectations. John tells us in John chapter 6 that Jesus fed them and got out of there quick because he knew they wanted to make him king by force. That's not the people Jesus is looking at in Mark chapter 8. In fact, I think you could say the miracle of feeding in Mark 8 is like a giant exclamation point on Mark 7 and 8, and particularly the stories of Jesus' interaction with people outside of the normal religious boundaries. It began back in Mark 7, 1 to 13, where Jesus engaged the Pharisees on their understanding of righteousness. That it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but rather it's what comes out. They had totally misunderstood the concept of holiness and cleanness. It wasn't who you were or what ethnic background you had or your commitment to the law. It was rather having a heart that was committed wholly to God. And so from there, he went to Tyre, the Gentile, enemy-occupied territory, where a desperate Syrophoenician woman fell at his feet and cried out. She, Mark says she kept begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And you'll remember what Jesus said. It's not right to take from the children's table bread and feed it to the dogs. And this woman, desperate for Jesus' healing, humble in her self-estimation, says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And he said, Because of your faith, because of this word, your daughter is healed. By the time we get to Mark chapter 8, we have learned to expect the unexpected from Jesus. That he's willing to do anything for anybody who will believe. But what we see in this story that he's not satisfied in just leaving them with crumbs. That he's going to call down the bread of heaven and satisfy every one of their needs. And since the 4th century, commentators on scripture have recognized that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 are twins. And we have two sets of twins in our church that I know of. Now, I, can tell, I can tell Brooklyn and Genesee apart, Gabby and Gianna, I, you know, I have no clue. It's like spot the difference, and I always try to figure out like which one's eyebrows, you know, and I can't. But this story is not an identical twin to the feeding of the 5,000, but it is a fraternal twin. And there is a pairing, and yet... They're trying to communicate something different. Feeding of the 5,000, Jesus provides bread for his people in the wilderness, just as Moses had provided bread for God's people in the wilderness. And in the feeding of the 4,000, he shows that he's not content 
to keep the blessings of the kingdom to the Jews alone. But he even includes the Gentiles in his feast. And in doing this, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what his kingdom is all about. I mean, all, all throughout the Old Testament, the hope and expectation was that at some, someday, at the end of all things, when God returned and vindicated his people and established his kingdom on earth, that all the nations would stream in. This hope began with God's first covenant with Abram when he was still in Ur. God said, Abram, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. That's Genesis 12, 3. And this hope and expectation continued to grow so that when God called his people out of Egypt and gave them his law, he made provision for how a Gentile could become part of the people of God. They could convert and take on the obligations and stipulations of the covenant for themselves. Later in Scripture, the prophets look forward to the day when the nations come in. I love the way Micah puts it in Micah chapter 4. He says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. I think it's obvious from Jesus' life and ministry that he came self-consciously fulfilling all those promises. When he told the Pharisees, you've totally misunderstood what God is after in clean and unclean and righteous and unrighteous. He's after people's hearts. When he looked at the Syrophoenician woman and healed her daughter, he knew exactly what he was doing. When he told the Pharisees in John chapter 10 that I have sheep who are not of this fold and I must go to them also. He knew his plan, that he was going to save a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and language. He even said in Matthew chapter 8, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And in this story, we see the first fruits of those promises coming true. This crowd of people was composed of Gentiles. People who in themselves were far from God, aliens to the covenant of promise and without hope in the world. And yet in a moment, Jesus had compassion on them and brought the blessings of the kingdom for them. See, in Jesus' kingdom, ethnicity doesn't count for anything. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're one in Christ Jesus, then you're heirs of Abraham children of the promise. Ethnicity means nothing to Jesus. Neither does a person's background, that they didn't know all the right answers, the right way of being. They had the one thing that mattered down to a T. You see what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, they have remained with me. They have continued with me for three days. This word remain or continue means to adhere or to commit yourself to Jesus. It's a heightened form of the word that Jesus uses in John 15. Abide in me. These people may not have been Jews, and they may not have known the law, but they knew enough about Jesus to recognize that if he is who he says he is, 
And if he was capable of doing what he was capable of doing, then he deserved all that they were. I mean, they stayed out in the wilderness with him for three days. They stayed out past the point of return. They ate up all their food. They drank up all their water. They were just sitting at his feet, soaking up his teaching. And because of that, Jesus poured out the blessings of the kingdom on them. This morning, I want you to know, it doesn't matter who you are, who your family is, what your background is like. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or today's the first time you've been here or the first time in a long time. When it comes to Jesus, those things don't matter. What matters is your heart. He has an extended and open invitation. And he has invited anyone to taste and see that he is good. I love the way he put it in this beautiful parable in Luke chapter 14. He said, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything's ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please excuse me from the dinner. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please excuse me from the dinner. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I can't come. And the slave came back and reported all that they said to his master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once in the streets and lanes of the city. Go out to the highways and the hedges. And bring the crippled and blind and poor and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. And still there's room. And then the master said to the slave, Then go out and compel them to come in. Go out into the highways and into the hedges that my house may be filled. Jesus doesn't care about the makeup of the crowd. It's exactly the people you'd expect to be there who aren't. What he's looking for are people who hear his invitation and respond. So that's the first difference between these two stories, the composition of the crowd. One was the Jews, the other was the Gentiles. But the second is the compassion of the king. I wonder if you notice this. Let's read it again in Mark 8, 2. I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come a great distance. Now turn back over to Mark chapter 6. See if you can spot the difference. Mark 6, 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. 
Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Do you notice the difference? You spot it? Who raised the question of the crowd's hunger and need? Mark chapter 6, the disciples say, hey, it's getting late in the day and these people don't have anything to eat and they're getting hungry. Send them somewhere they can, where they can find food. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me three days and have nothing to eat. It's different. Chapter 6, the disciples see that the people are hungry. In Mark chapter 8, it's Jesus who raises the question. These people don't have anything to eat. What are we going to do? Now, I, it's always dangerous to psychoanalyze Bible characters. It's really dangerous to psychoanalyze anybody, but especially Bible characters. People who lived a couple thousand years ago from us in a different culture and place. People who shared our common human nature, but who saw the world very differently than we do. So I don't want to press this too hard. I don't want to get down in their memories or dreams or anything like that. But if I could meet with the disciples and ask them one question, it'd simply be this. Why did you guys notice on the evening of the first day that the crowd was getting hungry? But Jesus had to raise the point on the evening of the third day in Mark chapter 8. Why the difference? I know there are lots of explanations. Maybe the people had more food, and so they were able to last longer in the wilderness. But then there are the darker reasons. Now, I wonder if they're preconceptions, their biases. I wonder if their prejudices influence the different concern they had for both groups. And if they did, they wouldn't be the first people in the history of the world or the last people to love their neighbors, the Jews, and hate their enemies, the Gentiles. They were concerned about the 5,000. These were Jewish men. They were, they were their people. They knew all about them. They knew what their life was like. In Mark 8, the 4,000 are Gentiles, foreigners, strangers, exotic people who are just as likely to lead God's people astray as to be caught up in the blessings of the kingdom. You know, I think by nature, the thing that's common between them and us is that we struggle, I struggle, to stay sensitive to the needs of people with whom I have little in common. You know, if it's people like me, I know what they're going through. I know what their life is like. But the more different we are, the less likely I am to know what it is they're going through, what needs they face. And so I wonder, if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, do you think you would have been more in tune with the 4,000 and their need than they were? I'm asking you to psychologize yourself now. So maybe instead of doing that, maybe you just ask yourself simply this. 
Am I the kind of person that's sensitive to the needs of others? Ask yourself. Am I the, maybe say it out loud with me. Let's say it out loud. That'd be cool. Am I the type of person that's sensitive to the needs of others? Now, men, we know we are not. We've been told this time and time again, that we're not sensitive to the needs of others. But honestly, I wonder, are you the type of person that's sensitive to the needs of others? Are you the type of person who's always listening to what other people say so that you could know maybe how you could help? Are you the type of person who has your eyes open to the needs of people around you? I mean, at home, would your family say, would your spouse say, would your kids say, would your friends, your neighbors, would they say you're the type of person who is always looking for an opportunity to help out? What about at work? Are you the type of person who does the bare minimum, or you look for opportunities to lend a helping hand? What about at church? When was the last time I served? When was the last time I found a place to get my hands dirty in the work of God's kingdom? What about in our community? The type of person who gripes about problems? Are you the type of person who finds a place and gets to work? I think it's pretty obvious the disciples were always on the sidelines. They're kind of passive in the story. Always confused. Never quite in tune with what Jesus is doing in the world. He has to wake them out, up out of it. Hey, I feel compassion for the people because they've been with me three days and they're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they're going to faint on the way because lots of these people have come from far off. You think the disciples could have taken a read of the situation and come to the same conclusion and maybe just said, Hey, Jesus, you remember how a couple of weeks ago we were in the wilderness of Galilee and you fed all the people with loaves and fish? You know, we got a few fish and a few pieces of bread around here today. You think you could redo that for these hungry people? But instead, Jesus has to raise the question. Where are these people going to get something to eat? And they say, I don't know. There's no place out here totally unaware of the needs of others. But not Jesus. He says, I feel compassion. Maybe your Bible says, I feel pity for these people. They've been out here three days and they're hungry. You know, compassion means to feel pity or to have sympathy for another situation. And it perfectly defines the character of God. Now, compassion is who God is. He's not just compassionate. He is compassion. Turn in your Bible with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, Moses is on Mount Sinai meeting with God face to face and receiving from him the Ten Commandments. And Moses asks a dangerous question. He says, I want to see your glory. And so God shows him his glory. He, he pronounces his name. 
and passes by Moses. His name, his glory, it is a manifestation of who he is in himself. It's his character on display. And this is what he says. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, your Bible may have that in all capitals. God is pronouncing his name, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is who our God is. That's who we've sung about this morning. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One who always knows exactly what you need and is willing and able to provide. The God who sees you in the wilderness and says, they're hungry. I need to provide them some bread. Compassion also characterized Jesus' ministry. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, when a leper falls down at his feet, and Mark tells us, being filled with compassion, being moved with compassion, Jesus said the word, I am willing, be cleansed. With the 5,000, Jesus had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. With the 4,000, he says, I feel compassion. He's moved with sympathy and pity when he sees the condition and need of others. And you know what? He expects that from his people too. Look at Isaiah 58. Maybe you're still in Exodus. You'd go to the right. If you move back to Mark, you're going to go to the left. Isaiah 58. And in verse 6, looks like you're trying to get there, so I'll give you a second. Isaiah 58 is a beautiful, beautiful passage. In fact, if you get a copy of the Followers 5, or if you're watching online and you want to download a copy, you can. One day this week, you'll read the whole thing and reflect on it. So beautiful. It's exactly what God desires from his people then and now. This is what he says in verse 6. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked, to cover them up, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry, and he'll say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You'll raise up the age-old foundations, and you'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. What God's looking for from his people isn't a deeper commitment to religious ritual and tradition. The answers 
or not to get people back in church. Now, God wants something deeper than that. He wants to see his people living compassionate lives. That's why Jesus says that at the end, he'll divide the goats from the sheep. Those on his right, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servants. For when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was sick, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you came. They'll say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you water? When were you naked and we gave you clothes? When were you in sick? When were you sick or in prison and we visited you? He said, truly, I say to you that as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. But to those on his left, they'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. For when I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And when I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and didn't feed you? When did we see you thirsty and we didn't give you a drink? When were you naked and we didn't clothe you? When were you sick or in prison and we didn't visit you? And they'll say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus expects his people to take the same kind of compassion that we see lived out in his life and share it with the world. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 12, As those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Compassion is the heart of God. It's who He is. We see it in the life of Jesus, and it should be a key quality in our lives. It's not optional. It's not an add-on. As followers of Jesus, you and I are called to share His compassion with everyone we meet. And so I wonder... If instead of the picture of Moses, I mean Abraham, and the spot of difference, it was you and Jesus. What differences would you see? Would you see his heart of compassion in you? Are you sensitive and aware about the needs of the people around you? Does your heart break for the things that break God's heart? I mean, he noticed the needs of the crowd. And I think if he came to Luling, Texas today, and there weren't 4,000 people or 5,000 people, but 6,000 people gathered around him, I think he'd see plenty of need. I think he'd feel pity and sympathy. First, for people who are lost, people whose family goes back generations. I can't find a single person who walked with the Lord. And I think he'd wonder, do my people not see? You guys unaware 
It's the evening of the third day, and you hadn't brought it up yet, so just so you don't forget, I feel compassion for these people. I think you'd see broken homes, families torn apart by family violence, drug use, alcoholism. Don't you think he'd feel pity and sympathy? Don't you think he would do whatever he could to bring the blessings of the kingdom for our community? You know, when I think about myself next to him, it's a glaring weakness in my life, a blind spot. There's a key part of who he is is often missing in me. Am I sensitive to the needs of others? No, Lord, I'm not. And if that's you today, let me challenge you to confess that as sin to God. To just openly and honestly say before him, Lord, you know that I don't care about the people around me. I care more about myself and more about my stuff. You don't even have to be super negative on it. So I get distracted and caught up in everything that's going on that I lose sight the people around me. Please forgive me. So confess. And then, number two, challenge you to seek a compassionate heart. Don't just say, hey, I'm so unaware of the needs of others. Say, Lord, make me aware. I'm sorry I'm unaware. Make me aware. Help me to see as you see. Help me to think about my family the way you think about them. Help me to think about my workplace the way you think about my workplace. Help me think about my school the way you think about my school. Help me think about my community the way you think about my community. Give me a compassionate heart like yours. So confess it. Seek it. Maybe the final thing I challenge you to do is pursue it by reflecting on Jesus' compassion for you. Jesus tells this crazy story, Matthew chapter 18, of a king who had a servant who owed him an exorbitant amount of money, more than he could ever possibly hope to repay. And so the king was settling his debts and called every debtor to him, and when this servant came before him, he said, look, it's obvious you don't have the money to pay, so... I'm going to sell you, your wife, and your children into slavery to pay it off. The man begs, be merciful, be compassionate. Don't do this thing. And the king says, yeah, because you've said that, I'm going to forgive your debt. And so he sends the servant away. And on his way home, he remembers that he has a fellow servant who owes him some money. And so he went straight to his house, and I imagine grabbed him by the collar and said, listen here, give me the money you owe me, or else. Pretty soon, word makes it back to the king that the servant that he had forgiven has gone out into the community and has tried to exact and collect the debts he was owed. And so he calls him back before him. He says, what are you thinking? 
You owed me more money than you ever could possibly hope to repay, and I forgave you. And yet your friend, your fellow slave who only owed you a little, you've held up and said, he better give you your money. Because you've done this, I'm going to bring down the world on top of your head. You want to learn how to have a compassionate heart? Reflect long and hard about the compassion you've received from Jesus. Think about the life you lived before you knew him. Think about the sins you'd committed and how they're paid completely by his death on the cross. Think about the promises of the gospel, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that everything that you've ever done has been paid for and you've been adopted into God's family. You, somebody like you, got adopted into God's family? Wow. How could you ever be uncompassionate or unforgiving towards the people around you? That's how you pursue a compassionate heart. And maybe this morning, you don't have a compassionate heart because you've never experienced the compassion of Jesus. And today's the day you can. We've talked around about it, but let me just put it to you clearly. That every last one of us is separated from God by our sins. And when we stand before him, we'll give an account for our lives, everything we've spoken, every thought we've thought, and everything we've done. And when it's time to settle our accounts, we'll owe a debt that we couldn't possibly hope to repay. But the God who made us saw us as we were, and he loved us as we were. But he loved us too much to leave us that way. And so he sent his own son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and to die on the cross in the place of our sins, showing his love and compassion for us. And after Jesus was crucified, he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again, removing the fear of death from everyone who trusts in him and assuring us of eternal life in him. Today, he'd be willing to apply the forgiveness he purchased on the cross to your life. He's not looking for people of the right ethnicity, not looking for people with the right family background, not looking for people who've only made minor mistakes in life. He's just extending an open invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This morning, the only thing that matters is that you've come to him and you remain with him. If you've never done that, today is the day to do it. I'd love to talk to you about it. There are people all around you that'd love to help you think it through. If that's you, don't let another day get by without experiencing the compassion that Jesus has for you. Will y'all pray with me?